Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the intertwining oil interests that underlie many of the decisions about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how others are responding to it. It's a tangled mess that the U.S., Europe, and other nations are currently attempting to extract themselves from, but it's going to be a long process. Clips today are from the Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, The Majority Report, Today Explained, and Why Is This Happening?, with an additional members-only clip from Uneffing the Republic. Want to know why gas prices are so high? This is my piece from HartmanReport.com today. It's titled Exposed, the Trump, Putin, and Saudi connection to high gas prices. You know, it's been a couple of years, and so most people have probably forgotten that in 2020, during the pandemic, in April of 2020, as the whole world shut down, as you could look up in the sky and there were no more jet trails, you know, vapor trails and things like that, everything went quiet, the highways were quiet, the demand for oil had collapsed so much that the price of oil was, you know, really, really low. It, it first, it, it got as low as 30 and $40 a barrel. And then the Saudis began punishing the Russians because the Russians wouldn't go along with production cuts to drive the price up. And so the Saudis opened their spigots. And the price of oil, actually, it, it went down to $15 a barrel here in the United States. And this is what Reuters wrote at the time. This was April of 2020, quote, Despite the agreement to cut a tenth of global production, oil prices continue to fall to historic lows. U.S. oil futures dropped below zero dollars last week as sellers paid buyers to avoid taking delivery of oil they had no place to store. Brent futures, the global oil benchmark, fell towards $15 a barrel, a level not seen since the 1999 oil price crash from as high as $70 at the start of the year. So here you have... American petrobillionaires and American fossil fuel companies in a crisis. You have Putin in Russia in a crisis. 40% of his economy is based on his ability to sell oil, and the price of oil just went to $15 a barrel. And you have the Saudis who can ride this thing out, who are basically driving the train. The Saudis control enough oil that they basically control world oil prices. And they were putting Putin underground here, uh, you know, with regard to oil prices. So what did Donald Trump do? Donald Trump took decisive action as president in April of 2020. He called up Mohammed bin Salman, the the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and made a threat that had never been made in the history of the United States against Saudi Arabia. We've had a, 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 a partnership, a military and other partnership alliance with Saudi Arabia for 75 years now, in large part because we need their oil. And Trump threatened them. He said, he said that, uh, Uh, we will pull back our military support of you guys. We will no longer support you militarily. As uh, as Reuters wrote in an April 30th, 2020 article titled, uh, Trump told Saudi cut oil supplier lose U.S. military support. This is from the Reuters article at the time. Quote, Trump delivered the message to the crown prince 10 days before the announcement of production cuts. The kingdom's de facto leader was so taken aback by the threat that he ordered his aides out of the room so he could continue the discussion in private, according to a U.S. source who was briefed on the discussion by senior administration officials. Kevin Kramer, Senator Kevin Kramer and Senator Dan Sullivan, 
two Republicans get, get big funding from the oil industry, had drafted legislation to pull U.S. troops out of Saudi Arabia, and Trump was using that as a threat. Immediately, Saudi Arabia cut production. Immediately, the price of oil went back up. So now we get to today, where uh, the price of oil is like you know, $130 a barrel, and it's showing up at the pump all over the place. Uh, Joe Biden called up the Saudis and the Emiratis, the UAE, the two countries that could just very easily restore their production cuts, undo their production cuts, raise the production of oil, and lower prices all around the world, which would help the United States and would hurt Russia. So President Biden calls up Saudi Arabia and says, I'd like to talk to you about this, and they refuse to take his call. He calls the Emiratis and said, let's talk about this, and they refuse to take his call. They're still dancing to the tune of Donald Trump, the Saudis and the Emiratis. They're saying to, to the United States through secondary channels that, yeah, we'll talk to you about lowering the price of oil if you will tell us that bombing Yemen is just fine with you, and if you will give immunity to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for ordering the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post reporter. And of course, Biden's not going to do those things. And so now the Saudis are, and the Emiratis are basically, you know, holding the price of oil high. And this then helps them and helps the Russians this way. By holding the price of oil high, they are handing a giant lead pipe to the Republicans that they can use to bash Biden over the head with, you know, about gasoline prices here in the United States. That helps get elected Republicans in charge of the House and Senate this fall, Republicans who will do the bidding of the Saudis and of Putin, and helps set up a new Republican president in 2024 who will absolutely do the bidding of the Saudis and the Russians. This is the way that this thing is drifting. This is, this is where it's all going. And nobody's talking about the, the role that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's treachery played in all this, threatening the Saudis and, and then sucking up to the Saudis. So Saudi Arabia was the first country he went to, you'll recall. And then, you know, but his son-in-law going over to that region and getting a billion dollars. And I mean, it's just, it, it, it is all so mind-bogglingly corrupt. Somebody commented on my piece. This is published over at HarbinReport.com. It's titled Exposed, the Putin, Trump, Putin, and Saudi Connection to High Gas Prices. Somebody commented on there, why is it that these oil-rich countries always end up being so corrupt? Antonia, at the same time, uh, the the Biden administration is looking to uh, reorient its uh, its supplies and obviously world supplies in discussions with Venezuela po uh, possibilities. Uh, there seems to be an impetus to reach a, a, a deal with uh, with Iran and also the uh, the attempts to uh, to get Saudi Arabia and uh, some of the Gulf states to increase their oil supplies, uh, both leaders of the uh, of the Emirates and of Saudi Arabia declined to have phone calls with Biden, apparently, according to press reports. So is it really a shifting of uh, more toward a renewable energy or is it an issue of having to reorient the supply, uh, the supply uh, routes in terms of oil? Yeah, there's the short and the long term. So first of all, I think it's really important to say that um, 
the price spike that we've seen immediately in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not about a shortage of supply of any natural resource at this point of oil or natural gas. It's energy traders trading on the expectation of a reduction in supply and pushing the price of oil up. The price of oil going up has immediately impacted the price of gasoline. If we regulated energy traders' behavior, we could address that problem right now. But the reality is right now, the expectation is that there will be a reduction in supply of Russian oil on the global market, of Russian natural gas, because Putin has already been using the supply of natural gas as a tool against Europe. So controlling the flow, the decision whether to let natural gas flow to Europe, which also has very significant impacts. So in the short term, the Biden administration did orchestrate, which is a fairly profound shift in global um, energy politics. The International Energy Agency acted to coordinate its members led by the United States to increase oil supplies by 60 million barrels. That was essentially as a direct rebuff against OPEC's unwillingness to do so. And that is because Saudi Arabia is aligned with Russia and trying to protect Russian interests and is not going to put more oil uh, into the market in order to support Russia. Um, It is not surprising to me that the Saudis are not taking Biden's call. I don't think that's going to happen. In the short term, there is a desire to demonstrate that there will be more oil and that should hopefully reduce the Um, stress that's being put on the market by energy traders and, again, the expectation of a reduction in supply. But I think we need to hold the administration and the rest of global leaders to their pledges, which is that they are saying this is a short-term solution. The long-term or even immediate-term solution is the transition to fossil fuels, and they need to be held to those statements. Every member of the Biden administration who has spoken has reiterated that statement, and they need to be held to that statement, because what, if anything, this war has shown us is how insecure we are based on this dependence. The United States is the leading guzzler by far of gasoline. That... that um, the power that the price of gasoline has over political elections, people's pocketbooks, um, everything in between is an incredible weakness. Uh, the dependence of Europe on, and I call it methane gas, not natural gas, because natural gas is about 93% methane. Europe's dependence on methane gas has put it into this position where it it is having an almost impossible time divorcing itself from Putin's power. Being unable to do that means that there isn't a stand to be able to take against uh, wielding the war against Ukraine. So that incredible weakness that is created by that dependence on methane gas and the idea that methane gas should should be considered a quote-unquote bridge fuel from fossil fuels to renewable energy, I think has been put into stark Um, you know, has been exposed to be not a bridge fuel at all, but rather a continued weakness, not only on compounding the climate crisis, but in continuing to support um, autocrats and some of the most brutal brutal regimes in the world. Um, You know, I think we need to look at the actions of the oil companies, BP, Shell, even Exxon, who have been unwinding and divesting their... um, Um, partnerships with Russia and doing so with public statements in which they say that they are doing this for humanitarian reasons. They do not want to put their money behind Putin and support his war. And that that 
sentiment, the same as Biden's sentiment in his speech, needs to be applied and thought of to all of their partnerships with all of the other countries that are wielding control over fossil fuels as weapons. Saudi Arabia is a key uh, example, and it's brutal war in Yemen. All of the same oil companies that partner with Russia and Putin partner with the Saudis, are in deep um, partnerships with the Saudis. And expanding this analysis to say, how can we unplug this power, this influence? In the short term in the United States, we need to be really clear we have uh, we import zero liquefied natural gas from Russia. We Im- we only get about three percent of our oil from Russia, which we don't need, and we do import some co- some coal. But we are not reliant on any of these on any of those resources, and we can immediately lead the globe in demonstrating that our goal isn't quote unquote energy independence. We don't need to be independent of other nations, but what we do need to do is make our energy sources localized and democratized so that we are using less energy by placing renewable energy sources as close to us as possible, making them um, democratically controlled, cooperatively uh, controlled and operated so that we are not simply replacing one form of extractives, massive extractives to supply renewable energy um, with what we are giving away uh, for fossil fuels. But to say that the more that we can localize our energy sources, the less dependent we are on any um, mass extraction or mass control of that extraction of the resource. And we can do that rapidly and we can do that right away and we can help other nations do that as well. Well, Antonio, I want to follow up on this issue of uh, Europe's position, though. Uh, Obviously, uh, Europe did not follow directly with uh, 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 Biden's decision yesterday. What about the issue of this uh, Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline and also that this crisis erupts just as Nord Stream 2 was getting uh, ready to go into operation? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a war that is the first— significant, well, since Russia's invasion of Crimea, the first superpower war over fossil fuels, about fossil fuels in in the climate era. And that has dramatically changed the discussion of all of these issues. So this isn't a war for oil in the way that Iraq, the Iraq war was literally to capture oil fields and turn them over to uh, oil companies. This is a war that is fueled by the financial support of fossil fuels that is supporting um, Putin and giving him control over so much of world decision making, but also the immediate impetus for the war was a dispute over a natural gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2. So Nord Stream 1 is a pipeline that carries a significant amount of methane gas to Europe, and it went, it goes from Russia through Ukraine, under the Black Sea, to Germany. And Putin has been um, with withholding natural gas from that pipeline to Europe as he is trying to get Nord Stream 2 into action. And Nord Stream 2 specifically does not go through the Ukraine, bypasses the Ukraine, so that Putin wasn't exposed to this weakness of Ukraine's uh, somewhat control of that pipeline bypasses Ukraine, follows a similar path to get to Germany. It's built, it's ready to go. But Europe and the United States have been trying to stop Russia's pending action against Ukraine by not letting the gas flow through Nord Stream 2. And that recent decision to not let the gas go through Nord Stream 2 was the most immediate predecessor to 
Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. So in many ways, this is a war that's about a pipeline, you know, the flow of natural gas um, and about Putin's ability to wield fossil fuels as a weapon. I mentioned in passing on yesterday's broadcast that energy giant Shell Oil, after making a big announcement, uh, was it a week or so ago, following uh, Russia's initial attack on Ukraine, that they were going to pull out from partnership projects with Russia. They got a lot of great publicity for that. Well, then they were caught buying cheap Russian oil recently. Seriously cheap. And uh, and today, well, now that they've got caught, they're really, really sorry and will never, ever do it again. Global energy giant Shell apologized on Tuesday for purchases of Russian petroleum products and agreed to phase out all involvement with the con- country's oil and gas industry, even though that's what we thought they were doing in the first place. Shell made headlines last week when it continued to purchase Russian oil despite the invasion and various global sanctions. Ukraine's foreign minister asked the company if it smelled, quote, like Ukrainian blood. On Tuesday, the oil giant facing worldwide opprobrium seemed to say, yeah, yeah, we we suppose it does smell a a bit like Ukrainian blood. And then they announced that they would halt Russian crude purchases and shutter operations in the country, a move which could cut Russia off from a major international customer. You know, the very thing that Shell hoped the world had believed about them after their initial announcement that they were pulling out of Russian gas and oil projects until they got caught apparently doing the exact opposite. Shell's chief executive, Ben Van Buren apologized for last week's crude purchases and said that any profits would be donated to provide humanitarian support during the Ukraine crisis. How thoughtful of him. In a statement, Van Buren said, quote, we are acutely aware that our decision last week to purchase a cargo of Russian crude oil to be refined into products like petrol and diesel was not the right one. And we are sorry. Sorry that they got caught, I suspect. He pledged to, quote, commit profits from the limited remaining amounts of Russian oil we will process to a dedicated fund and promise to aid humanitarian agencies over the coming weeks. Van Buren said there were, quote, incredibly difficult trade-offs that must be made during the war in Ukraine. Like, hey, should we raise our prices on consumers and buy really cheap oil on the black market to double the amount that we are screwing over the public, even as we even as the money that we give to Russia will help them kill more Ukrainians, even as we help destroy human civilization itself with our product? You know, incredibly difficult trade offs that must be made during a time of war. Well done, Shell. The actions deepen a global private sector embargo that has isolated Russia's economy over the past week. Russia's petroleum exports have diminished since it launched its attack of uh, neighboring Ukraine. Just under two weeks ago, according to The Washington Post, Shell has already suspended its operations there. At least, you know, they say they have. 
The Washington Post uh, reports it as such, along with ExxonMobil and BP, who also claim to have done the same. Should we trust them as well? They've always done the right thing in the past. BP also said it would not enter into any new contracts for Russian oil and gas and that it would not charter vessels owned, operated or flagged by Russia. French energy giant Total Energies also walked a fine line saying that they would halt new spending in Russia, but maintain their partnership there, including a nearly 20 percent stake in Russian gas producer Novatek. Hey, Total. Does it smell like Ukrainian blood? Total Energy's chief executive, Patrick Puyane, said at an energy industry conference on Monday that his company would not renounce its Russian connections, noting that European governments had not directed it to do so which should serve as a reminder to all of us, private companies do not do the right thing unless they are instructed, actually forced to do so by government regulation. Poyane said, quote, I had discussions, obviously, with the highest authority in my country, and there is no push from them for us to exit Russia, he said, according to Reuters, which should serve as a reminder to all of us that Governments do not do the right thing unless they are instructed and actually forced to do so by the public. Now, the good news is that all of that pressure on all points does appear to be paying off. The European Commission on Tuesday announced that they, in fact, will be weaning off of Russian natural gas and pledged to do so by two-thirds by the end of this year. That is no small feat since Europe, at least right now, gets about 45 percent of its gas from Russia. Here was Franz Timmermans, vice president of the European Commission, making the announcement at a press conference in Brussels on Tuesday. By the end of this year, we can replace 100 BCM of gas imports from Russia. That is two-thirds of what we import from them. This will end our over-dependency and give us much-needed room to maneuver. It's hard, bloody hard, but it's possible if we're willing to go further and faster than we've done before. Bloody hard, but it's possible. Yes, it is. And it's been long time coming, and they're finally getting around to actually doing it. U.S. officials, meanwhile, have been looking for ways to take the pressure off of global energy markets and ease the pain of rising prices and or profiteering by energy companies for consumers. Analysts warn, however, there is no supplier that could easily supplant Russia quickly, given that they are the world's third largest fossil fuel producer. Oil prices hit their highest point in over a decade on Monday, as Western sanctions lasered in on Russia's energy industry. As we noted last week, however, in one of our Green News reports, new polling from Reuters Ipsos following the Russian attack on Ukraine suggests that Americans at least are willing to pay more for energy, if necessary, in order to help Ukraine. As Reuters reported, a majority of respondents, 58 percent, said that paying more for fuel and gas because of the crisis was worthwhile to defend another democratic country. That was up 
almost 10 points from a poll that was taken just one week earlier in the days just before Russia's assault on its neighbor. Even uh, just before the attack on Ukraine was launched, as CNN noted, new polling from the Pew Research Center found that Americans wanted the U.S. to prioritize clean, renewable energy over deadly fossil fuels. The Pew results show a huge majority, 69 percent of American adults, favor developing alternative energy, including wind and solar, over increasing production of fossil fuels like oil, coal and natural gas. It also found that same huge majority, 69 percent again of Americans, want the U.S. to take steps to become carbon neutral by 2050 as President Joe Biden has been seeking to do. In other words, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. The Republican News Network, however, Fox News, uh, you'll be shocked to learn, has, has not gotten that message for some reason. One of their dumb White House correspondents has been pressing White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki for answers as to why Joe Biden was not expanding oil and gas drilling leases and permits on public lands here in the U.S. She told him that the industry already had thousands of permits on millions of acres of land that they were already not using and so he should go back and ask his friends in the oil and gas industry why that is. Well, apparently he says he did, and he came back to Saki the next day with the same question on Friday. Here's how that went for him. Uh, so yesterday you said, you know, less oil supply, you said it again today, um, yeah. uh, it raises prices. And you said, ask the, um, so I asked the American Petroleum Institute about those 9,000 leases. Yeah. Which you've been talking about. The president and CEO of that group says that a lot of policies that have been put in place by this administration, including a ban on new development of federal lands and federal waters, is really hindering American energy development during a critical time. Also, he says, the royalty fees increasing on drilling uh, discourages investment. So are there any plans to reverse any of these policies? to encourage investment. I think he may have avoided your question. I mean, because the fact is that onshore alone, as of the start of this year, the industry had more than 9,000 unused approved permits to drill in the United States. I, don't, I didn't hear him speak to that in particular. And of the more than 37 million acres under lease offshore and onshore to the oil and gas industry, nearly 60% are currently non-producing. Now, obviously, our view on drilling over the long term is different, I would suspect, than the person you spoke to, which is that what overall we need to do here is reduce our dependence on oil. Europeans are doing that. We're doing that. And I think what we're all going through now in this discussion of banning oil imports and the volatility in the global markets, oil markets, is a reminder of that. So, but there's no shortage of drilling leases that can be used domestically to enhance production in this moment. They, the oil and gas industry is literally sitting on stockpiled leases and permits. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple, to make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are giving to someone in need. From the very beginning, they have been focused on building a business that does good. They started selling socks with their buy one, donate one model, specifically because socks were the most requested item at homeless shelters. And then it turns out that t-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so now they've expanded accordingly. So now Bombas has you covered for all of your essentials made with super soft materials and chock full of great features. As always, everything they make is soft, tagless, 
features invisible seams, and is the perfect weight so that they hang just right. And so far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. Joe Biden um, announcing the other response by the international uh, community. This is um, it's going to increase uh, the the price of gas in this country. Um, it's an international market. The the um, it'll mean it'll create uh, greater demand on other suppliers. But uh, here is. Um, but we are also just, I think, a couple of weeks away from OPEC's deal to diminish production over the past two years, in which case we may see them increase production. Although my understanding is that um, Saudi Arabia is not answering the phone because they're still mad that uh, Joe Biden doesn't appreciate the uh, the guy who chopped up uh, a journalist being the head of their country. But uh, here is uh, Biden speaking uh, about um, a ban on Russian fossil fuel import. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and I believe in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made, we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united. We're moving forward this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. But we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. Our teams are actively discussing how to make this happen. And today, we remain united. We remain united in our purpose to keep pressure mounting on Putin and his war machine. Uh, the administration has done a good job, I think, in maintaining, uh, um, uh, you know, some semblance of, of cohesion amongst uh, all the allies here. And, uh, and to be clear, this is a good example of why the idea of us upping production would drop prices because we're already selling uh, oil and um, natural gas. We're exporting it already as a country. The bottom line is when you hear people talk about increasing us oil production or natural gas as a way of dealing with a situation like this, they're implying this is a national security issue. Americans are paying more money. And in that instance, your response should be, I agree, which is why we should be nationalizing all of these things. They should not be in private hands because in private hands, what's going to happen is 
those private entities that are selling and exporting whatever fossil fuel they're exporting, they're going to say, well, you're going to have to pay me more money if I'm not going to meet that contract over there and I'm going to meet the contract domestically. You're going to pay me more money. Okay, we'll pay you more money. What should happen is we should nationalize every interest that we have in this country of every drop of oil that is being uh, extracted, every bit of coal that's being extracted, every bit of natural gas that is being extracted. In fact, all of our energy should all be nationalized. You're going to see the, the behavior of a lot of people in Congress uh, change very quickly if that were the case. We change a lot of things. But if someone's going to push the argument, we need to drill more because it's a national security issue, then the obvious response is, then we should nationalize it. It is national security. We should nationalize it. Following the EU's commitment earlier in the day to wean off of same by uh, two thirds by year's end. So again, uh, he noted, as Jen Psaki did on Friday, 9000 drilling permits that the U.S. oil and gas industry are not using. They have them, but they're not using them on public lands alone, which only account for about 10 percent of their total drilling. Even while the industry's GOP tools are bitching every day on Fox News that Joe Biden's policies are increasing gas prices, holding them back and, and, and raising the cost of gas at the pump for everyone. Lies, lies and more lies. But there are real things that we can do to both lower energy costs right now during this time of war and, as it turns out, help save the planet at the very same time. Uh, that, according to uh, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, on Monday, uh, finding that Europe can do uh, certain things to cut its reliance on Russian imports by a third by year's end. Uh, but some of these things are also things that the U.S. can do to uh, help as well. No, Desi Doyle? Indeed they can. It's basically based on demand destruction. And the important thing about the IEA's 10-point strategy is that it is consistent with the European Green Deal, which means it supports energy security and affordability, but does not support new fossil fuel development. So uh, one of the first things they say is, I think this is the easiest one, do not sign any new gas supply contracts with Russia. <laughs> Good idea. That's a start. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it goes from there to replace Russian supplies with gas from other sources okay. and increase, so you increase your non-Russian gas suppliers mm -hmm. in the near term, introduce minimum gas storage requirements to so they can build resistance for next winter into the gas system. So they have supply on hand. Mm -hmm. Accelerate the deployment of new wind and solar projects. That will, of course, in turn reduce gas use by a huge amount each year. Maximize power generation from bioenergy, like methane capture, and nuclear. And uh, that part it includes considering postponing decommissioning of nuclear power plants mm -hmm. uh, until fossil fuels are phased out first. Mm -hmm. 
uh, then enact short-term tax measures on windfall profits of fossil fuel companies to encourage them to not price gouge customers. Oh, oh, there's an idea. Yeah. Speed up the replacement of gas-fired boilers with electric heat pumps. Now, these are next-generation heat pumps that work really, really well Mm -hmm. in cold climates. Uh, Norway leads the world in uh, installation of 96% of new heating systems in Norway last year Mm -hmm. were electric heat pumps. And and that's a big deal, replacing all of those... uh, natural gas and oil boilers with electric heat pumps, that could save alone uh, a, a, a huge amount of money. And by the way, uh, I've seen, uh, I think it was Bill McKibben reported that uh, Joe yeah, he, Biden should use the... Um, the Lend-Lease program. That was a big deal in uh, World War II. Use that along with the Defense Production Act yes. to ramp up a U.S.-based domestic manufacturing supply yes. chain to first supply Europe and then build the domestic supply chain to then supply the U.S. Build those as heat well. pumps, send them all to Europe. Like yeah. we did in World War II. A huge jobs generator. Mm -hmm. So then it goes on to accelerate energy efficiency improvements in buildings, homes, and industry with funding from the government to do so. Step up efforts to diversify and decarbonize sources of power, including electric power, so that they can interconnect the European Union grid Mm -hmm. so that countries can help each other. And then finally, conservation by encouraging European consumers to use less, like lowering their thermostat. So the first is that, of course, is that we could move away from fossil fuels, which we have to do anyway to fight climate change. It's a big goal of the Biden administration and many governments in Europe. And as far as oil prices and gasoline prices are concerned, that mostly means switching to electric vehicles and other forms of like electrified transit and public transit. And like the U.S. should invest a ton of money Congress should pass some very aggressive climate policy. That's what we need right now. We need to start planning. That being said, there's a few options the Biden administration has. The first, and I think the one that we're most likely to see first, is that it's going to try to reach a new deal with Iran. Because Iran has a bunch of oil that it could be producing that it's not producing right now. And it would love to get Iran back on the world oil market. So they want to get more oil on the market, even though there isn't necessarily a shortage at present. Yes. Yes. If you want to keep oil prices down, you have like two ways to do it. You can reduce demand, how much oil people burn, or you can increase supply. If you do a deal with Iran, you're going to increase supply. And that's going to help keep prices low. The kind of like last thing the U.S. could do to increase oil, to decrease oil prices, which again is not reducing oil demand, is like the U.S. could produce more oil um, from the large geological like reserves that it already has. But there's also always tapping into the strategic reserve, if I remember correctly. And the, the U.S. has already done twice now. So... We keep, you know, the U.S. and other developed countries keep tens of millions of barrels of oil um, just sitting around in case something happens. And Something like a war. Something like a war, yeah. Or one of the main reasons for it is so that basically if there was a big war and the U.S. participated, that the U.S. would have enough 
gasoline and fossil fuels to fund its military. But it has also become used to kind of like stabilize the effect of geopolitics on global oil markets. And twice now, the U.S., in conjunction with other countries, has released oil from its strategic reserve, sold it on the open market, and that has briefly lowered prices kind of twice. The issue with that is it's just a one-time thing. You sell the oil, it goes out, it gets used, does not make a long-term effect on production. And to some degree, we're in this funny place because basically for 40 years, the goal of U.S. energy policy was that we wouldn't be dependent on foreign oil, that we'd produce enough oil for us at home so that no matter what was happening in the world, the U.S. would be insulated from oil shocks. And of course, at this point, the U.S. is the largest oil and natural gas producer in the world we have achieved, at least on paper, this energy independence we were looking for for 40 years. And what we found is that actually oil is a big global market. Prices are set internationally. Oil kind of can go anywhere in the world. A fat lot of good it's done for us. (laughs) You know, like we produce a ton of oil in the United States and that has not done very much to keep oil prices down when there was trouble in in the larger world. So a lot of politicians want U.S. oil companies to drill more, to frack more. I think that's going to be hard because fracking companies kind of were producing too much oil during the 20-teens and they lost a lot of money. And now they feel like they need to make a consistent profit for their shareholders. And so they're actually really happy for oil prices to go up. And they're very reluctant to drill more. And so the Biden administration is going to have to cajole their investors to actually accept lower profits. So it sounds like all of these solutions you're talking about, Robinson, would incrementally help eventually, but the overarching solution here to avoid crises like these would just be to become less reliant on oil, which of course has been, say, like President Biden's strategy from the jump. Although if you were paying attention to his State of the Union last week, it seemed to be much less of a priority than it used to be. Yeah, definitely. And that is because a lot of the president's climate policies have just been frozen in Congress. You know, plans to incentivize Americans to buy more electric cars, to build out renewable electricity, to power those cars. Um, Right now, that's just sitting in Congress and, and waiting for, you know, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Chris Sinema of Arizona to find a way to support, perhaps. This is a no. And so... I think the White House would still love to support some of those policies, but they are so frozen. It doesn't even know how to advance them that weirdly, even though this is the main way to reduce our long-term dependence on oil, to improve American energy security, it is like not something that's been on the agenda so much. It just feels a little bananas right now that the whole world is facing this energy crisis that that we could solve. And yet, in the moment where we could actually commit to solving it, so we're never in this situation again, the solution isn't like, why don't we do energy diversification? The solution is like, let's hit up Iran for way more oil. And it's so funny to compare it to like 2008, 2007, with the last time the gas prices were really, really high, when like there was this huge push to move to lower carbon electricity and lower carbon energy, because like, Frankly, it was like the last year of George W. Bush's term. And so people were like, oh, we got to do this environmental stuff. Like this Republican hasn't been doing it. But because Biden's already in office and because he's already kind of 
been trying to get this energy bill through, it feels like there's less of a push. But like, yes, this is the thing. Like, we if we moved away from fossil fuels, then our exposure to any of these problems, just as an economy, would be lower. And the crazy thing is, like, not only that, but like what we've already found during the past year is like, right, oil prices were going up, going to the war. And that's because the U.S. economy was doing really well. We were adding a ton of jobs, but we were finding that there was a limit to how good the U.S. economy could be without oil prices going up a lot. And if we decarbonize the economy, we would take some of that limit away. We'd get rid of some of those constraints. The U.S. economy could be doing even better. And so there's a ton of reasons to do it. But I think it's going to take way more of like a public push to turn this moment where oil prices are going to be really high into a moment where we actually successfully move away from oil and gas. You know that guy Midas? You know the myth of Midas? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's the guy, you know, who touched everything he touched would turn to gold. I mean, what's so interesting is when you say in current English, someone has the Midas touch, is that a positive or a negative? I think it's a positive, although it seems like sort of a pain in the ass if you're like well, <laughs> holding right. a lot I of mean, different isn't things. it interesting? Because the story of the myth is that it's a complete catastrophe. Curse. Yeah, it's a exactly. catastrophe. Why? Because it's infinite. Because hmm. everything he touches turns to gold. Because he converts everything of incomparable value, you know, I mean, irreplaceable things like the food mm. that we eat, the apple tree, in Hawthorne's version, his own daughter, who he stoops to kiss on her forehead because she's trying to comfort mm. him because she sees how horrified he is. And he kills her. He kills her. And... I find that such a powerful myth for explaining what corruption is. Let me just track it. Because what it's about is where money is not something that you need for something else. It's money that's not about enough. It's about winning. And that's an endless race, right? That's a race with no finish line. And the people who get caught up in that race are the most dangerous people to the human species and the rest of the planet that I can imagine. Basically, again, not to get too off track, I'm going to get back to corruption. But if you look at the climate crisis that we're all dealing with right now and, you know, Mm -hmm. Siberia burning up, that's about that is caused by people who are engaged in this race. Right. And who knew back in the 1950s that this would result and they lied to us about it um, so that they can continue making converting the irreplaceable treasures on this earth into not gold anymore, but zeros in bank accounts. And so you can think of this like a mnemonic device, whatever, a a way of remembering this. It's the Midas disease. These people have the Midas disease and they're going to kill us. So. What do they do? They almost always organize in networks or coalitions, right? Because the rest of us who are victims of their behavior, we're way stronger than them if we can band together and rein them in. So what they do is they band together and capture the rulemaking process 
disable all of the protections that governments may erect on our behalf and bend and repurpose, you know, basically government institutions and agencies to serve their networks instead of serving the public at large. And so that really is what corruption is. Yes, it's the abuse of power for personal gain. But when it's really dangerous, it's not just one venal guy, you know, with his hand in the cookie jar. That's not the problem. The problem of the government officials who engage in corruption is much, of course, yes, they steer public funds to themselves and their cronies. But I think even more importantly, they denature the function of government to serve in perpetuity their cronies and themselves and at the expense of the public interest. And what's worse is that when the public stands up to this, they deploy a really effective countermove. And the most effective, they deploy a number of them. But I think the most effective one that they deploy is dividing the public up along identity divides. And those identity divides can be ethnic, as in Afghanistan, between you know Pashto speakers and Persian speakers. It can be sectarian, as in Lebanon. It can be racial, as here. It can be political, as here. It can be urban versus rural, you know? And the problem is that we tend to organize around our our identity groups, even, you know, in spite of our shared interests. Those identity group interests tend to trump, excusing the word, um, the, I think, much more important shared egalitarian interest in curbing the super rich, frankly, the Midas disease people right. who are going to destroy the world. So, so that's a kind of broad way of understanding corruption. They do it, as I say, by, by repurposing, by capturing revenue streams, whatever they might be, In every single country I've looked at, three that are always captured are energy, um, finance, and high-end real estate. Those three show up Mm -hmm. all the time. And then there can be variations depending, you know, in Afghanistan, it might be pomegranates. In Tunisia, it was dates, you know. Um, Right. uh, Property, always. I mean, that's the high-end real estate. Um, And they, you know, capture the justice function so that they can you know, meet out punishment and impunity. They often capture the, usually capture the law, the rule writing capacity. Where they don't capture justice, they work around it. So in Egypt, for example, um, General Sisi couldn't quite gain control of the civilian judiciary. So he just got laws passed that expanded the jurisdiction of the military courts. You know, stuff like that. Anyhow, then you ask, What's an example of of curbing this? And I think one of the only examples I can come up with is the New Deal and its European counterparts in the late 1930s and after World War II. I think there Mm -hmm. were a series of laws and regulations put in place There was a certain amount of punishment of wrongdoers, particularly in the banking sector. 
And there were protections put in place for ordinary people to join forces, to stand up to the Midas-diseased cliques, you know, like protections for labor organization and things like that. Antitrust, I mean, a lot of things that we don't think of as technically corruption, but anti-bribery legislation was way, way, way stronger than it is now, much stronger. Yeah. Um, And antitrust enforcement was completely different. It wasn't just about price. It was also about dominant political power and snuffing out of competition. And that all changed beginning in the very late 1970s and the early 1980s when the money maximizers started organizing again. We've just heard clips today, starting with Tom Hartman explaining the links back to Trump threatening Saudi Arabia on behalf of Russia that have all become quite relevant again under these new circumstances. Democracy Now! explored the dependency of Europe on Russian oil and the power dynamics that creates. The broadcast discussed Shell buying Russian oil and Europe divesting from it. The Majority Report talked about Biden banning imports from Russia and the need to nationalize our oil production. The broadcast also looked at ways for the world to move away from dependence on Russian oil more broadly. Today Explained also looked at a bit of an all-of-the-above strategy for transitioning away from fossil fuels. And Why Is This Happening with Chris Hayes looked at the role of corruption and the Midas disease in fueling climate disaster. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Uneffing the Republic doing a deep dive on the history of oil and oil markets, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds, and not just because they swear on that show. The genius of what the Merck introduced was the possibility of trading futures on just about anything. This eventually included oil, which would begin on a small corner of the New York Mercantile Exchange in the late 1970s, trading home heating oil futures. Soon, almost everything would be fair game to trade. The marriage of deregulation and technology over the past several decades has birthed franken-markets that influence nearly every aspect of our daily lives, from controlling pensions and mortgages to home heating oil and bread. Traders are pagan gods and we are their minions. Although markets today are bigger and faster, the underlying truth to the trading game is simple, proven, and unwavering. For every winner, there is a loser. To hear that and have all of our bonus contents delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, just to wrap up, I want to put a finer point on the fact that it seems Russia's invasion of a sovereign nation and rising gas prices are doing something all the IPCC reports in the world couldn't. Broadening acceptance of the idea of a fossil fuel-free or at least fossil fuel minority energy future. 
Now, of course, there's going to be a giant push from the right to drill more and do away with regulations of any kind, so it is critically important that rhetoric be answered and drowned out by a giant movement of people like you. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a specific direct action to point you to right now, though we are hopeful that that is in the works. What we're asking you to do today is get dialed in. Find your local chapters of climate action organizations like 350.org, Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, Mothers Out Front, and start going to events, meetings, teach-ins, and webinars. If you don't know already, find out who your local state legislators are and start writing to them advocating for investment in renewable energy, public transportation, bike lanes, and more in your state. Also, be sure to call out any politicians taking fossil fuel money. We've included links to help you take all these actions in the show notes. Because the fact is, the climate movement has answers to nearly all of the concerns of this movement. So let's take advantage of that and change the trajectory of our collective future. As always, you can keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through patreon or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com mm-hmm.